0: Okay, let's look at our scripture that can be found on the back of the bulletin. This is 1 Corinthians 15:1 through 11. Paul is transitioning. We've been spending a lot of time talking about spiritual gifts, and now he turns to looking at the resurrection. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you The word of the Lord. Well, it was December 21st, 1968. Three astronauts were poised, hundreds of feet in the air on a giant rocket for the Apollo 8 mission. They were following the mandate of US President John F. Kennedy's goal of landing a man on the moon before the end of the decade. But there's one thing that has stood in the way of mankind in that effort, and that is gravity. There's a constraining force around the earth that is called gravity, and in order to break it, in order to achieve escape velocity, you must build up a speed, actually a speed off the ground of 6.96 miles per second. That's 24,858 miles an hour. And so these astronauts were on top of a Saturn V rocket, the first time to launch men into space. This Saturn V rocket dwarfed anything mankind had ever created before. At a height of 363 feet, it was 58 feet taller than the Statue of Liberty. Fully fueled, 6.5 million pounds, and capable of creating 7.6 million pounds of thrust at launch, creating more power than 85 Hoover dams. It was designed to send at least 90,000 pounds to the moon. And after a countdown, Apollo 8 lifted off, and the three astronauts slipped the surly bonds of Earth and went to orbit the moon 10 times before returning. There is a constraining force on humanity that I want to talk about today. It's like gravity, but even harder to escape. It is called death, and all humans succumb to its power. Some live longer, some live shorter, but in the end, death has its prize. And the limiting factor of us escaping death is not biological, it's spiritual. The Bible tells us that we were created in the image of God, created for immortality, to love, glorify, and obey God. And mankind was given the freedom to choose, to love and serve his creator, or to rebel against him. And there was a consequence of that choice, for the wages of sin is death. You know the story, Adam and Eve chose to rebel, and a curse was placed on humanity, for the one who sins is the one who dies. This was corruption that was brought into creation. Mankind was alienated from God and from each other. And all of us since then have experienced the power of death. A loved one, a treasured relationship that was there and is now gone. Evidence as we look in the mirror of our bodies growing weaker and frailer. Death reminding us that all is not well, that all is lost in the end, that nothing lasts forever. But in the gospel, in time, in history itself, one has come, one who faced death and conquered the grave by rising from it. And Jesus Christ did so that we might face death and conquer it as well in him. The hope of the gospel and of Jesus Christ is that death is not the end, that life has meaning and purpose. You see, Christianity rises and falls with the resurrection. Our hope and our belief is not as much based on what Jesus said, but rather on what he did. For we are not saved by following the advice of the founder, we're saved by the founder. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith is useless, and there is no hope for humanity. But Jesus has come so that we would not live in the curse of death, but rather in the power of the resurrection. And so we must let the power of the resurrection be the power of our life, now and forever. We're going to look at Three particular points that Paul makes in this passage. Number one, the centrality of the resurrection. Why it's so important. Number two, the proof of the resurrection. What's the evidence? And finally, the hope of the resurrection. What it means for you and me. So let's look at the centrality of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. Why is Paul now choosing to touch on the resurrection? He's been touching on and talking about the behavior of the Corinthians for quite some time, and now he's turning to touch on belief. And the reason is because belief determines behavior. The Corinthians have not fully grasped the implication of the resurrection. It's not that they don't agree with it, but they have not fully worked out into their lives what it means. And as a result, they're still living like the world. And so Paul wants to remind them, as it says in verse 15, of the gospel I preached, in which you stand. He's reminded the Corinthians that the resurrection is a critical element of the gospel. You know, we can divorce the resurrection from the gospel, can't we? We hear he died for us, for our sins on the cross. And we get that, and we understand that. But all too often, we stop there. When you think of the gospel, do you think about the resurrection also, or only of the cross? Romans 4.25 says, he was delivered over to death for our sins, and was raised to life for our justification. Without Christ's resurrection, his sacrifice means nothing. And so Paul says, I would remind you of this gospel in which you stand, in which you received, and in which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul is saying, this is the gospel you stand on. This is the gospel that you receive. This is what is saving you. And he issues a warning that you must hold fast to all of it. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And so Paul goes on in verse 3 to reiterate what is this gospel that he's preached to them. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He explains the gospel, what I delivered to you as of first importance, which means as of greatest importance. Just about all scholars believe that this is the first Christian creed that Paul is communicating, that this was a a creed that was well known in the Christian church. Even skeptical scholars such as uh, Gard Ludman and Michael Golder say that this creed was most likely created within the first two years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see the two elements of the gospel, that he died for our sins and was buried, that he was an atoning sacrifice, and he died for our sins according to the scriptures, which means according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan. But then it goes on to say that he was raised on the third day. Why is this a critical component of the gospel? What if Jesus was not raised? See, we need to understand that Jesus became a man to represent us to God. Remember at the beginning of his ministry when Jesus comes to John the uh, the Baptist and says, to baptize me. And John, of course, says, what are you talking about? You're You're sinless. You don't need a baptism of repentance. But the reason Jesus was being baptized is to position himself as the representative of all humanity. Now, we understand this because we live in America, which has a representative government. We have elected officials who are authorized to act on our behalf. And the actions that they make have consequences for us. When the U.S. Congress declared war on Germany in 19. 41, if you were living back then, the decision they made had a profound effect on each American because each American is united to their leader. And all of us are born into this world united to Adam, our ancestor, our forefather. And Adam was given this covenant of works where God told him that if he followed God's commands, to love God and to love one another, that he would receive glory and immortality. But Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. And the decision that they made has had profound effects on each one of us. The curse of death. Now you may say, that's not fair. I didn't choose him. My answer is fine. Prove that you are not of them. Act in a way that is different than them. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Stand on your own two feet. And the answer is that we can't. See, as a man has gotten us into this position, into this problem, we need a man to get us out of this problem. We need a new representative, a new champion who will stand before the giant of death. And it is Jesus, the God who became man, who came to free us from death. Though he was not deserving of the penalty of death, he bore it for us. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake he made, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Unlike Adam or the children of Adam, us, God, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. And the only reason that Jesus died was not for his sins, but for the sins of his people. And having paid for them through his suffering, of an eternity worth of punishment, we discover that Jesus Christ could not stay dead. Because death is for the lawbreaker. Death is the curse for the lawbreaker. And Jesus was without sin. In fact, Jesus' love for us, his selfless love and act, shows that he is the very antithesis of those who are worthy of death. And so the resurrection is Jesus' triumph over death of God recognizing the sufficiency of his sacrifice and the reality that he is a fitting leader, new leader of humanity. Acts 2.24 says, but God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I remember a couple months ago, I was running my hand over a piece of wood outside and I got a splinter in it. Kind of went in and it was painful. And it's interesting the physiology of the body. What the body begins to do is it begins to try to work that splinter out of your body, out of your hand. And the reason is. Because it is a foreign object. It, it doesn't belong there. And the body knows that. And so it's healing properties. It works to push the splinter out. See, that's exactly Jesus Christ and death. He doesn't belong there anymore. He's paid the sacrifice of death. And so Jesus Christ could not stay dead because it was impossible for death to keep its hold On Jesus Christ. I'll finish 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake. He made him who knew no sin. To be sin. So that in him. We might become. The righteousness of God. See Jesus triumphed. Over death. For us. So that he could take our sin. And punishment. And in its place. Give us his righteousness. Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 says this, Although he was a son, although he was a man, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. See, Jesus had to live just like you and me. To endure the same temptation. To face the same giants. To suffer And to learn obedience by being obedient to the end. And having been made perfect, he became a source of salvation. Jesus Christ has the power to transfer our ownership from Adam to himself. And if you are a Christian, you no longer belong as a descendant of Adam. You're a descendant of Christ. And not only does he transfer to us his righteousness, but his resurrection, power, and innocence as well. Romans 6.3 says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So you may ask the question, "Callers, if all of this is true, why do Christians still die? The answer is they do and they don't. The body may die, but the spirit does not die. Notice how he refers to these 500 that saw Jesus Christ, that some have fallen asleep. He doesn't call death, death. He calls it sleep for the Christian. Remember the thief on the cross right next to Jesus? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I tell you, this day you will be with me in paradise. Now that thief on the cross, his body was buried that day, and his spirit was resurrected. In the same way as Jesus' body was buried for three days and on that third day his body was resurrected, so the same thing will happen for Christians. That if you die before the coming of the Lord, your spirit goes to heaven and your body sleeps in the grave until it is time for the resurrection in which it will be raised and your spirit will be united with your resurrected body. This is uh, chapter 32 of the Westminster Confession. The bodies of men, after death, return to dust and see corruption. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. The souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torments and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. But the bodies of the unjust shall by the power of Christ be raised to dishonor at the coming of the Lord and the bodies of the just by his spirit unto honor and made conformable to his own glorious body. This is the future and the hope for the Christian. You know, on top of that space capsule in Apollo 8, there were three astronauts, Frank Borman, James Lovell, and William Anders. And their desire, all they had been training for, was to slip the surly bonds of Earth and to enter into high-grade orbit. But you see, without that Saturn rocket that was sitting below them, it was impossible. No way on their own, without that rocket, Could they achieve that escape velocity? They could flap their wings as hard as they wanted to. They could find the highest cliff and jump off of it. They could even fly a 747. They were all pilots. But none of those things had the power to escape the force of gravity. The escape force of death is perfect holiness. And there's only one place that you can find it. It's a person, Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection from the grave is the foreshadowing of what is to come for all who believe and obey him. You have felt the sting of death. And if you haven't yet, you will. Family, friends, future. Maybe you've felt the sting of death in your own life in the sense of you and I know that we were made for more. We were made to love God. We were made not to succumb to bitterness and anger and jealousy and hatred. Yet try as we might, they continue to pile on us and we find ourselves despite our best efforts without power to conquer these giants on our own either the giant of death in the future or the giant of death that we experience in our own perfections now. But Jesus Christ rose from the dead so that we could start to live the resurrected life now. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so Paul can say that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That Christ gives me his resurrection power to begin to live the life that I was intended to, not just when he comes again in the future, but now in this world. Are you looking for hope for the future? It's in Christ. Are you looking for hope and strength for the present? It's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. This is the centrality of the resurrection. But I go on to point to the proof of the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.5 that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and then he appeared to Cephas, Peter, Then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This list of resurrection appearances is by no means comprehensive, is it? What about the disciples on the road to Emmaus? What about the women? We see that Jesus gave many, many convincing proofs, Acts 1, uh, 3, that he presented himself alive after his passion by many proofs appearing to the disciples during the 40 days and speaking of the kingdom of God. But let's look a little bit closer at this list because we see something very interesting. We see James, who was Jesus' brother, who did not believe in him until after Jesus Christ appeared to him. And giving a 180 and becoming a follower of his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, he ultimately became the Bishop of Jerusalem. Peter, who denied him to a servant girl, 50 days later is boldly proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the exact same city where Jesus was crucified, where the exact same garrison of 600 Roman soldiers are stationed. What is the difference? He saw the resurrected Christ. Paul, a murderer of Christians, begins to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus appears to 500 people at one time. This letter was penned around 53 to 55 A.D., about 20 years after 33 A.D. when Christ was resurrected. And we see here that most of them are still alive. Paul is saying this this can be corroborated. Any scholar will tell you this is not written as legend. This is written as history. This is the genre being written. And he goes and he appears to the 12 again and again. These disciples who were cowering at crucifixion, who now boldly proclaim the resurrection. The story that was put out by the Jews, the disciples stole the body, right? That doesn't make sense, does it? With what we see of these disciples. What is the reason for their faith? That he is alive. Acts 2.23, when Peter is preaching to the Jews, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, losing the pangs of death. Let all house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Well, how can we be certain that this happened? You know, it was the enemies of Jesus that even knew he said he was going to be raised, right? Remember that the the chief priests, they came to Pilate and they said, look, this man said he was going to be raised. If we don't guard that tomb... They're going to steal the body and it's going to be worse uh, you, you know, than before. And so he says to go take a guard and make it secure. And so they took a guard and they put a seal over the stone, the imperial seal, so that everyone know would know that it would uh, to break it was to be upon the point of death. And yet Jesus Christ could not be contained. Some people say that Well, Jesus Christ was not dead. He was only mostly dead, which is not dead at all. So Jesus somehow overcame the guards, managed to clean himself up after being crucified, whipped and beaten, and convinced everyone that he was actually the resurrected Christ. My friends, the reason the stone was rolled away was not to let Jesus out. We saw that he could actually walk through walls. It was to let us in so that we would see and that we would know that the tomb is empty. Simon Greenleaf, one of the founders of Harvard Law School, who really is the person who wrote the rules of evidence in our legal procedures for the United States of America, said this about the testimony and the evidence concerning the gospel. Let the gospel's testimony be sifted as if it were given in a court of justice on the side of the adverse party, the witness being subjected to a rigorous cross-examination. The result, it is confidently believed, will be an undoubting conviction of their integrity, ability, and truth. See, people may say about Christianity, well, you have your truth and I have mine. Like, believing in Jesus is kind of like your lucky rabbit's foot. You know, it's that John Lennon song, whatever gets you through the night, right? It's all right. Whatever gets you through the night. But you see, our faith is based on the things that Jesus did. And if he didn't do them, then this whole thing is useless. But our faith is not based on wishing or historical fact. Uh, or hoping, it's based on historical fact, that the tomb is empty. He is alive. And thus we have hope for the future and can have a relationship with the living Christ now. The apostolic church thought more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than about death in heaven. The early Christians were looking not for a cleft in the ground called a grave, but for a cleavage in the sky called glory. We too live in the last days, don't we? They have been inaugurated with Jesus Christ. And the enemies or skeptics of Jesus Christ say, well, where is he? It's been so long. But we must remember that a day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day that the Lord has his plan. He is gathering his people and he says to watch and be ready because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And so we should live with one eye fixed on this world and the other eye on the sky. See, many in this world live in fear and we are tempted to live in fear as well, aren't we? Unrest in the Middle East, the collapse of morality in the West, the uncertainty of what the future holds. But we don't have to live with uncertainty or fear. Indeed, when we see these, what are called birth pangs in the Bible of the end, Jesus says, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. First Peter 3 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. No one knows. So keep your eye on the ball. Live holy and godly lives and speed the coming, the second coming of Christ. The only thing that is stopping Jesus Christ from coming is the last believer coming into heaven, coming to faith. Once the last believer, and no one knows which era that last believer is in, the end will come. Jesus has come so that we would not live in the curse of death, but in the power of the resurrection. I want to finish with my final point, the hope of the resurrection. I love how Paul in verse 8 says, last of all he appeared to me. And I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul is saying I have blood on my hands. How do you deal with the guilt of knowing the very thing that you were passionate about doing was the very wrong thing, the exact opposite of what you were meant to do. How do you and I deal with our shame and guilt of falling short? The answer is grace. Verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. The grace of Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, changed me. He forgave me. And he gave me the ability to forgive myself. And the power to change. And to live the life I was supposed to. Not I, but the grace of God in me. I conclude with this. If you are looking for victory in your life, not only in the future, at the resurrection of the dead, but to live a new life now, free of fear, addiction, guilt, and shame. It is found in the resurrected Christ. What is holding you down? Put your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ. Look to him for strength and direction because he came that we might be free. Give him your guilt and shame and take up his righteousness and power as you surrender to your new King, following his spirit. For Jesus has come that we would not live in the curse of death, but in the power of the resurrection. So let the power of the resurrection be the power of your life, both now and and forever let's pray oh God when we look at your son Jesus Christ the resurrected Christ we see that there is hope and there is victory Jesus you came that we might have life and have it to the full not only in the future but now so as best as we know we give you our hearts we look to you for power and strength and guidance For surely you are able to defeat the giants in our life and to give us lives of holiness as we depend on and obey you. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.